take a seat. Well, in light of everything that Paul has already discussed up until now in this uh, letter of Ephesians about the enormous privileges that we now enjoy as Christians, particularly in the context of what was already said and we looked at last Sunday about how the Gentiles are now reconciled to the Jews and form this one body in Christ, the church. Now the apostle in chapter 3 before he moves on to practical application, he, he, sets out in, uh, to, he sets out to pray for the church, to pray for the Ephesians. But however, he, ever the preacher, and some of you know uh, about this, there is a tendency to draw uh, tangential thoughts and parentheses uh, so often. And that's what he does here in chapters uh, in chapter 3 from verse 2 to verse 13. If you look at your Bibles in verse 1, he begins by saying, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ for you Gentiles, and usually the, the, the translators, they will put a, a, a dash there, because there is a sense that this section from verse 2 to verse 13 is a parenthesis, then connects to verse 14. For this reason, and Paul continues to say, I bow my knees to the Father. So this extended section, it is a parenthesis. It is a, a tangential thought. Why does Paul do this? I don't think he does it for, uh, for no... Uh, I think he does it for good reason. If nothing else, because he is inspired by the Spirit to do it. Why does he interrupt his natural train of thought to bring this information here in verse 2. As he mentions the Gentiles, he is uh, keen on remembering those readers in Ephesus of his ministry to them, of his unique ministry that God had given to him to proclaim. This is probably the, the this is not probably, this is definitely the most personal part of the entire letter where Paul opens his heart, where Paul reveals his uh, calling to the, to the Ephesians. And this, this as well brings it into context. As Paul is about to pray, this parenthesis brings the prayer into context. So today we'll look at this parenthesis from verse 2 to verse 13. However, we will not be able to look at it uh, completely so that I'll divide this into two parts again it's a two-part sermon over two weeks uh, firstly today we'll look from verse 2 to verse 7 we'll look at the nature of Paul's uh, serving the nature of Paul's mission and next week we'll look at the purpose of his mission so first of all the nature of Paul's service of Paul's mission of Paul's ministry of Paul's calling. He begins by saying, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ. And I won't prolong myself here too much. Most of you have been were here when we were going through the book of Acts, and I've already alluded to this uh, in the past in this exposition. Paul was under house arrest. We know this from uh, Acts chapter 21, uh, when he came to, Jer to Jerusalem, he was accused wrongfully uh, of 
bringing a Gentile into the courts of the, of the, of the temple, and the, the Jews uh, wanted to kill him, but, but uh, God intervened, and he was taken a prisoner by the, the Roman authority, and over a period of years, he was brought consecutively f uh, before Felix and Festus and, and Agrippa and, and eventually as the Jews were not relenting and, and letting it go Paul appealed to Caesar and he is brought under arrest uh, to Rome and he is placed under house arrest for two years Paul appealed to Caesar uh, and there, that's where he is at the moment he writes this letter in Rome in a house arrested chained to a, a Roman soldier Paul was literally a prisoner, and yet, and yet, he calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. There is something, Lord, uh, brothers and sisters, something wonderful in this. Paul understood that he was not a prisoner of Caesar, that he was not a prisoner of the Romans or of the Jews. Paul understood that he was a, under the sovereign control and providence of God. That it was the Savior's hand that had led him to the situation that he is in. And that Savior has a purpose. Were it not for Christ's will, Paul would say, were it not for Christ's desire, I wouldn't be chained here. Neither the Jews, the Romans, Caesar himself could have kept me, could have imprisoned me. And that's why he calls himself a prisoner of Christ and no one else. Now, this does not negate that the, the Jews that accused them, the Jews from Asia, probably Ephesus actually, uh, from Asia that accused them, this does not negate the, the miscarriage of justice on the part of Felix and Festus. This does not negate any of their responsibility. But Paul had a clear perspective on the situation that he was in. And this allowed them to respond appropriately to life's adversities, even to being unjustly accused and imprisoned. He dedicated his life to preach the, the, the gospel of Christ, to make Christ known to a Gentile world. He's in prison now, chained to a Roman soldier, he could have wondered why this happened. What mistake did he make? But no, he understands that God is sovereign and in control. And throughout this letter, there is not a hint of, of anger or bitterness. There is not a, a hint of resentment or, or uh, disillusionment with his circumstances. Why? Why, Paul, are you able to uh, have joy in the midst of this suffering? Because he understands that it is a sovereign God who is in control. For him, the doctrine of God's sovereignty was not an abstract idea, some academical thoughts uh, that he uh, would uh, stretch his mind to consider. For him, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God was something practical, something real, something that, was, uh, that brought him peace in the midst of trouble. He was in prison because of Christ. He was in prison because God is good, he would say. He was in prison because God has a good, perfect, pleasing uh, will. And he's accomplishing it. What a thing for us to grasp, brothers and sisters, in our own life. 
in our own circumstances. Every Christian, we need to deepen our understanding and our uh, grasp of, of this doctrine, of the sovereignty, of the providence of God and its implications. And only then can we react to difficulties and tribulations appropriately. Only when we fully understand and embrace and live out the reality that God is sovereign and in control of everything, uh, only then will we be able to face difficulties. Because the truth is, it's not the difficulties that shape our reaction to them. It's our perspective on them. Let me see if I can make myself a little bit clearer. It's not the difficulties itself, difficulties itself that make our that shape our reaction and our response to these adversities. It is our perspective on them. If all you see when you go through difficulties, challenges, tribulations, afflictions, if all you see are those very same things. Of course you'll be despondent. Of course you'll be disillusioned. Of course you'll, 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 you'll be discouraged. Of course you'll be a prisoner of those circumstances. But when you take your eyes off of the circumstances and look to the sovereign God who, who, who is in control of everything, who is good, just, and wise, who never makes a mistake, when you take your eyes away from the circumstances and look to God, then you can say, as Paul said, that in spite of all that is working against you in this life, all is well with your soul. You'll only be able to deal with those things once you get a grasp on the sovereignty and the providence of God. That we have a loving Heavenly Father who, who cares for us, who loves us, who is good, not just some of the time, but all of the time, who is all-wise, all-knowing, who cares for his flock, who cares for his children, who has promised in his word that all things work together for the good of those who love him. And there is a world of a difference, Paul would say to you, to see yourself as a prisoner of Caesar or to see yourself in, as a prisoner of Christ. The circumstances are exactly the same. But there is a world of a difference in the perspective that you take of those things. Paul saw himself as a prisoner of Christ, this loving Savior who lived and bled on the cross for his sins. He was not a prisoner of wicked men, prejudiced men. He was not a prisoner of people that were against the gospel of Christ. He was a prisoner of Christ himself. And the question for us as we begin is, what do your eyes see when you are in affliction? Do you just look at the circumstances, at the challenges? Like the psalmist in Psalm 73, when he was looking just at, at the prosperity of the wicked, before he looked up and, and entered the temples of God, the temple of God, do you do you look uh, like the the 
just at your own circumstances, like the sons of Korah in the, in the other song, where they, they cry out, oh, oh, why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? And the, and the answer was, not to look at the circumstances, but to look to God. Hope in God. Look up. Don't look around. Look to God. What do you see when you're in afflictions and trials? Do you see the, the, do you just see your inconsiderate husband or your inconsiderate wife? Do you just see the, the rebellious child or, the, or the, uh, the unjust boss in your, uh, in your workplace? Do you just look at your uh, failing health? Do you just look at your dire financial situation? Or do you look up and see the God who works through all of these things? I'll be, uh, uh, no matter how crushing they seem worldly, who works all these things is good, perfect, well-pleasing purpose. For Paul, the answer was clear and unmistakable. Paul was not a prisoner of Caesar. He was a prisoner of Christ. And he recognized and he said he was a prisoner of Christ because of his ministry to the Gentiles. God had, a, uh, God had given Paul a particular, peculiar, unique calling that very few in the history have had. But God had given this calling. He was to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And he, for him, it was for this reason that he was a prisoner of Christ Jesus. It was for this reason that he was go undergoing these things. That the Gentiles themselves would be encouraged that the Gentiles themselves might receive the ministry. Paul says uh, in, another, uh, in, in another part of the letter that he rejoices that he suffers for the Gentiles. Paul's sufferings were part of the plan and he understood this. And Paul goes on to highlight this ministry this mission that he was given. And he uses two words, and we'll look at the two words, and then we'll look at two um, features of his ministry. Two words that he uses here. First of all, he speaks of his service, of his mission, of his calling, albeit peculiar, yes, as a dispensation. Look there in verse 2. He calls it a dispensation. This word dispensation can be differently rendered as an administration or as a service. Paul speaks of his mission as a service, as an administration of God's grace. When he says, if you have heard, he is not doubting uh, that the Ephesians know of his ministry, but he's emphasizing to them that they indeed have heard. Since you have heard of the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, the word here comes from the word oikonomia, which we get the word economy. Paul saw himself, this is the nature of his service, Paul saw himself as an administrator. He considered himself an administrator of God's sacred uh, trust. Primarily for the benefit of the Gentiles. Isn't it wonderful? Paul saw himself as an administrator. And as believers, as Christians, whatever vocation God has given us, 
whatever calling God has called us to uh, into in his service, we are administrators, we are dispensers, we are uh, servants, stewards even of this calling. 1 Peter 4.10, the Apostle Peter says, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. God has given each of his children gifts. This is not Pentecostalism. These are ordinary gifts to be used and to be administrated for the good of the whole body. That's what, Paul, uh, that's what Peter is saying. That's uh, how Paul saw his ministry. And that's what Peter then applies it to all of us. That we are to use each of our gifts to minister to one another as good stewards of the manifold gifts and graces of God. Both within the local body, outside in the church family, uh, broader church family, and even in the world as we bring the grace of God to others. We are all administrators of God's grace. Everything we have belongs to God. Our gifts, our abilities, our possessions, our time, and everything is God-given. Again, having this eternal perspective, is God-given so that we may administer it for the good of others. And brothers and sisters, one day, I know this is not... Uh, uh, popular, uh, that this is something that is often neglected, but one day we will stand before the, the God that gave us all these gifts and graces, the God who has blessed us with his grace so that we might minister that grace to others, and we ha will have to give an account of what we've done. Very much akin to when a, a company uh, calls for auditors to come in and audit the books. They, they call for the books and someone will look through the books and, and see uh, how the money is being used, how the, the resources of the company are being used. That's the kind of calling that we'll have. There are some Christians who think this is not the case. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That each one may receive the things done in the body. According to what he has done. Whether good or bad. Paul clearly states that we will appear before God's judgment seat. Not to be judged uh, whether we go to heaven or hell. But to be judged as stewards. As we... Uh, how have we been faithful or unfaithful in the use of our gifts and graces? Because every one of us, if we're brought into, brought into the body of Christ, we are brought into the body of Christ with a purpose to serve, to advance the kingdom of God in this world, to equip one, to uh, stir up one another. Some of these gifts are more visible than others. Some of these gifts are more public than others. Some of these gifts are virtually imperceptible. But nonetheless, God sees all in the same way. And we need to make sure, just as the Apostle Paul uh, here makes, uh, is keen on, and as Peter exhorts us, we need to make sure that we are faithful in administering 
these graces and gifts that we've been given. We need to make sure that the grace that God has bestowed upon us is faithfully given to others. It doesn't exhaust our grace to, give up, uh, to extend it to others. It, in fact, in, enhances it, and the body is built up. Yes, Paul had a very unique calling in many ways, as he highlights here. But his calling, in many ways, is not dissimilar from ours. God has given us salvation, and he has called us to serve him. And now, what do we do in his service? To Paul, it was a very particular gift, a very particular calling, a very unique calling. To him, it was given to know the mystery, and that's the second word that we'll consider quickly. It was given to know the mystery of Christ. The word mystery here is the word uh, mysterian. It is, uh, when we think of mystery, we tend to think of something that is esoteric and difficult to comprehend. And we even use that uh, to refer to the Trinity. We say the Trinity is ultimately a mystery. We're, we're not able to unpack it and to, and to uh, uh, comprehend it fully or predestination is a mystery as well, how the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man uh, go together, although we know they go together. We call those things mystery, but when Paul, when Scripture, when the New Testament speaks of mystery, it's not speaking of something that is hidden, only attainable uh, to some, it, when that is uh, very difficult to uncover. No, when Scripture, the New Testament, speaks of mystery, it's speaking of those things that once were hidden, once were, were locked away, once were uh, not really understood, and now they have been revealed. That's what Paul says. He made known to me the mystery, as I've briefly already uh, written, uh, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it is now been revealed by the, same, by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. The word ministry is, referred, uh, is used in Scripture to, to refer to truth that has been revealed. Revealed is that word that, that we get, um, uh, well, in, in Portuguese we get the word apocalypse, uh, which is the book of Revelation. It is that, that word that speaks of something being unveiled, something that before was hidden behind shadows and types. God, through his spirit, in the apostles and prophets, now has revealed, has unveiled it, and that mystery is now clearly seen. That's what Paul is saying. And Paul already referred to this mystery before. He, that's why he says, once you have read, I have already briefly made known this to you. And the mystery is what we've been considering the last uh, few weeks. It is the, the fact that in Christ, both Jews and Gentiles are now brought together into one body, one nation, one family, one temple. That's the mystery. That's the mystery that in the Old Testament was not clearly revealed. You had inklings, you had glimmers and, and flashes that the, the, the prophets of the Old Testament would every once in a while see, but they didn't understand it as we do now. And these things are now 
revealed to the apostles and the prophets and are now written for our benefit. And that is wonderful because God took care to leave us with a record of those things which were once hidden, those mysteries that were once uh, unattainable. Now we have a record of it in scripture. And now we have it in our hands and before us. And why did God do this? Because we need to know these things. We need to know these things in order to live lives pleasing in his sight. And this is important for us. Another point of application quickly here. Sometimes you hear people complain about uh, excessive doctrine. Oh, don't give us doctrine. Give us practical application. Tell us what to do, pastor. Tell me how to be a good husband, a good wife. Tell me how to be a good parent. Tell me how to live a, a, a faithful Christian life in this world that is ever-changing. Tell me that. I, I, we don't care about this, this uh, uh, stretch your mind and uh, this chasing the rainbow, splitting hairs of doctrine. I don't want to be uh, beating a dead horse. Practical things. And the reality is the Bible speaks of these things. Ephesians chapter 4, 5, and 6 is filled up with, with uh, practical instruction. How to be a good wife, how to be a good husband, how to be a good parent, how to be a good servant, a good, a good worker, how to be a good Christian in this world. The Bible gives us all of these things. But they are rooted and grounded first and foremost on the doctrines that that saved us on these doctrines. Isn't it wonderful that Paul, before he gets to that practical application, he spends three chapters without giving a single command. Three chapters just expounding doctrine, high theology, just opening up to the Ephesians. Well, you, you might consider to remember these things uh, in uh, verse 11. Therefore, remember that you is a command. But... But he spends three chapters expounding doctrine. Why? Because you will only be a good husband and a good wife. You will only be a good steward, a good, a good employee. You will only be a good Christian once you grasp the fundamentals. Once you are rooted and grounded in the fact that it is by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves, but of God, that you have been saved. You wonder why, why husbands are, are, have difficulty loving their wives in, in church, not even outside in the world. You wonder why uh, some Christian uh, husbands have difficulty loving their wives because they have not yet grasped, as Paul will say, the love of Christ for the church. Once you grasp the doctrine of God's love for the church in Christ Jesus, then you will be loving to your wife. Once you grasp it, once you understand it, once you... Uh, have a firm sense of it. Same thing with the wife towards the husband and her submissiveness. Same thing as an employee. Why is it that, that uh, you find it difficult to work for your employee? Because you're not working for him as if uh, you're serving the Lord, as to God. Because once you understand that your employer, that is, that your employer is to be and served and, and worked for as if for the Lord himself, that will change your attitude to your work. You will see it as a service. You'll see it as your vocation, as your ministry. 
You'll see it as something that you do, not as a prisoner of your circumstances, but as a prisoner of Christ. Christ gave me this job. I have to serve him in this job. You see, doctrine is important. Why are there Christians who struggle with, 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 with so many of these things? Because they haven't grasped the fundamentals. They want to jump over the fundamentals and start doing the practical without first getting the theory. Why is it when we, you go for a, for a driver's license, they first make sure that you've passed the theory exam? Because you won't be a good driver if you haven't grasped the fundamentals of, uh, of, the, of the theory behind driving. Why are there defeated Christians in churches? Why are there depressed Christians in churches, discouraged Christians? Why are there the, uh, Christians in churches who, who live as if, they, as if they are paupers and miser, mis, miserly uh, in churches? Because they haven't grasped the unsearchable riches in Christ Jesus. Because they haven't understood the, the inheritance that we have from God our Father. They have not yet been able to fully comprehend. Why is it there are Christians who are so enamored with the world? Why is it there are Christians who look, dress, and speak like the world? Because they haven't understood the greatest, uh, the greater higher calling. If they are Christians at all, that is. They haven't grasped the fact that Christ has called them to heaven. They haven't grasped the beauties of heaven. They haven't grasped the glory of heaven. So they get enamored with this world. You see, all of it in practical Christian life is rooted in a firm grasp and understanding of these doctrines. Of these mysteries that are now revealed to us. In the gospel of Christ. And we have it for us now. Consider the privilege. That in this Bible. In this scripture. We have the answers for everything we want. And we ever need. If the Bible doesn't speak about it. It's because we don't need to know. So that the man of God. May be approved. Thoroughly equipped. To be well pleasing in the sight of God. Sometimes you hear Christians wanting to, to go back to Old Testament times. They speak of prophecies. They speak of dreams. They speak of uh, a special revelations they receive. They don't understand that you're going back to the times of Elijah's and, and Jeremiah's and Isaiah's. You're going backwards. Because they would have loved to live in the time that we live. We're much more, much more privileged than they were because those things which were then hidden are now revealed in Christ, in Christ Jesus. And it is a privilege that we do not always fully appreciate. It is a privilege that we do not always fully appreciate that those things are now revealed to us, given to us. All the answers, all the things we could ever want from God to tell us in order to live lives pleasing in his sight, in this Bible, in these words. Paul saw himself as this steward, as this servant of Christ's ministry, and he had a particular ministry, a peculiar one, a unique one. We have our own ministries. We have our own callings. But the one thing you can see from Paul's words, and we'll jump to verse 7, 
and I've closed my Bible. And we'll jump to verse 7. We've, we learned two things. I would say in closing, but, uh, but I won't say it just now. Of which I became a minister, a servant, according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. As we consider the nature of God's uh, of nature of Paul's ministry, mission, calling, we see first of all that Paul regarded it as a great privilege. He was a servant. The word is diaconus there. The, the word is deacon. He was a deacon. He was a, a servant, a steward of, of, of God's grace. It was a privilege to him, an honor to serve Christ in the gospel. And brothers and sisters, it is an honor for ourselves to serve Christ in the gospel. In whatever capacity, apologies, in whatever capacity God has called us to serve him. Yes, not all of us will be called for full-time ministry. And it is a wonderful privilege and I don't want to downplay it. Because I'm still awestruck as I was saying to someone recently about the privilege it is to serve the Lord in this capacity. But brethren, serving the Lord in whatever capacity the Lord has called us, it is a privilege. In spite of the hardships, in spite of the struggles, in spite of the vicissitudes of things coming our way, it is a privilege. That's why someone like Spurgeon, it's been a while since I quoted Spurgeon from the pulpit, someone like Spurgeon was able to say to the... To, uh, Candidates for ministry, if God has called you to serve him to, in, his, in his kingdom, don't stoop down to become the king of England. Do you understand that? If we truly have a, an understanding of what it means to serve the king of kings, anything else be, is below that. Even being the king of England, even the greatest of other callings, what we do for Christ matters and is the most wonderful privilege in our lives. And whatever God calls me to do, I will do. And again, not all of us are called for full-time ministry. Not many are called to be pastors and, and teachers. But it is a misconception that you're only serving the Lord if you're a missionary in some remote place in, in, in Africa, in South America, in Asia. You're, you're only a, a servant of God if you're a, 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 a pastor in, in some church. That is a tremendous misconception that was very much what, uh, fought against in the Reformation. In the Reformation, the priesthood of all be believers, the, the servanthood of all believers was emphasized that we all as Christians, we are, there is no distinction, there is no such thing as clergy and laity. We're all servants. And I'll quote again Charles Spurgeon because he, he says this so wonderfully. He says, I know the angels in heaven will be glad to see Wesley and Whitfield. But when they see some of those old, women, uh, those old women 
who have been bedridden for years and have been just clinging to the cross of Christ and have been shut out from all the world and have only had a little light from heaven to cheer them, when they see them in heaven, they will say, these are the rare people. And they will give them especially hearty welcome, for they have come out of great tribulation and who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The point is that our service to God is not measured as well by worldly terms, is it? There are many good preachers, pastors, theologians that will not be welcomed in heaven because they have never received Christ. They lacked faith. Unfortunately, it is true. Many men who would otherwise in this world believe that they are uh, the godliest of the saints. And yet there are many anonymous women and men who faithfully live their lives in spite of all the struggles and hardships, looking to Christ, uh, grasping and, and striving for him. And they're welcome in heaven if there is such a thing as, or there is such a thing as the judgment as we saw, their, their reward in heaven would be much greater than many of these great heroes of the faith. Why? Because their faith, because of their faith, their trust, because of their zeal to serve the Lord in whatever capacity the Lord had given them to serve. William Carey, wonderful man, he was a cobbler. And before the Lord called him to be a missionary in India, he was a, uh, he was a cobbler for, for the glory of God. He would say, I fix shoes to support the ministry of the church. A cobbler with a sick wife who we would now know that she suffered from some kind of bipolar disorder, but at the time she was just a delusional wife, suffered from something with lots and lots of problems, serve the Lord in whatever capacity the Lord called him. Initially to be a cobbler, later to be a, an administrator in the mission to India, there in the place translating the, the Bible into various languages. He was a preacher as well. He became a pastor as well. But he served in whatever capacity the Lord gave him to serve. You know, when I leave my, my home on Monday morning, I, I usually take the Saturdays off, as most of you know. So Monday, tomorrow morning, I'll leave my, my home. I'll, I'll walk down this small stretch of road, and I'll get into my office, and I'll consider that I'm serving the Lord. But tomorrow morning, when you leave your home to go to your job, you're leaving the, your home to go to your job to serve the Lord. And if you're a housewife, if you're unemployed, if you're retired, if whatever you're doing, as you wake up, you should see it as I'm waking up to serve the Lord. What is it, Lord, that you would have me do? And secondly and lastly, Paul understood the privilege and Paul understood the power. It is through the effective working of his power, he says. It was by the power of Christ that Paul, the persecutor, became an apostle. It was by the power of Christ that now Paul, the apostle, the minister of the gospel, works and breeds and serves. It is through that power 
that he already expounded back in, in chapters, uh, in, in, at the end of chapter one. The power that is at work in us or towards us who believe, it is through that power, Paul says, that we serve. It is not through our wisdom, our wits, our strength, our capacity, our, our, our ingenuity. We serve the Lord through his power. And that's the greatest of news. As if we were left to ourselves, we would fail. If we were left to ourselves, we would undermine ourselves every step of the way. But brothers and sisters, it is through the grace of Christ that we are saved. And it is through the grace of Christ that we serve. And that's why the, the saints in heaven, you go to the book of Revelation. What is that beautiful picture presented there? As the saints are presented before the throne of grace and, the, and they have their crowns in their heads, they take off their crowns and they give them to God. Why? Because it is him that they it all. Ultimately, it is his power at work in us. And that's why Paul can say, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Three times he prayed for that thorn in the flesh to be removed. And when God revealed to him, when God spoke to him and said, it is for your good. Because through the, your weakness, my power is made perfect. He then gave glory to God. And he rejoiced in his sufferings. And he rejoiced in his weaknesses. That's why he always emphasized in almost every single letter he writes to the churches. Pray for me. Pray for me. Again, Spurgeon, and I promise it's the last time, I hope. Uh, Spurgeon once asked about what was the, 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 the source of the success in his ministry. He didn't say it was the fact that he was very smart and he read quite a lot of books and he, and he was very uh, um, persuasive. No, he said, because I have a church that prays for me. I have a church that prays for me. And brethren, that is a commendation for us all to be in prayer. Because we will only serve the Lord. I will only serve the Lord as a pastor. You will only serve the Lord in your callings effectively if we are constantly and persistently praying for one another. When Paul gets to the end of this letter, he's going to speak about the, the, the spiritual warfare. And he begins by saying that, that let each one of you examine his own, for each one bear his own, let him with, oh, I turned to the wrong one. Ephesians chapter 6, he, he says this right at the end there. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And he describes the whole armor of God. And then once he gets to the end of describing the whole armor of God, he says, and take helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. It is the power of God. The, the, the prayer is the oil on that armor in our spiritual warfare. Be strong in the power of his might and be prayerful in the service. You see, it's very easy to look at Paul and think he was some kind of superman. He was no superman. It's very easy to look at the life of the apostles and think that they were some kind of specially given people because they were able to do these things. To look at the life of heroes of the faith like Whitfield, Spurgeon, Wesley, and, and think, oh wow, they were supermen. No, they were weak. 
they were probably weaker than you and I. Or they would consider themselves weaker than you and I. And that's what led them to their knees. And that's what caused them to pray. And that's when powers, God's power is made perfect in their weakness. Brothers and sisters, let us consider it a privilege to serve him. Let us meditate continually on what God did. Let us deepen ourselves in the study of scriptures, of those enormous, enormous privileges that, that we have in Christ, so that then the world seems nonsense to us. So that then our, uh, the world is no, no more pleasing to us. No longer pleasing to us. So that then we understand our weakness. And we are driven to our knees. To ask the Lord's blessing. And if you are not a Christian in this place. If you are visiting us today. I don't want you to. Overlook the fact that the man who wrote this, these words was himself at a point not a Christian. He was a persecutor of the church. He was one who was breathing threats and anger and hatred against the church and against Christ. But then he met Christ on the road. And he asked him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goats, to kick against the, the spikes? Are you kicking against the goats? Are you banging your head against a brick wall trying to make it yourself? You're only hurting yourself. You're not hurting Christ. The same way that Paul was, in that sense, uh, not hurting Christ. He was kicking against the goats. He grieves Christ. Because Christ is a compassionate Savior. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But it does not diminish his glory. It is you who are hurting yourself. Kicking against the goats. It is you who will suffer eternally forever. You hear the gospel and you reject the gospel. And every time you, you, you hurt yourself that little bit more. The greatest of hurts is going to come when finally you are before the presence of the judgment seat of God and you are without Christ and we are, you are without hope and you are without God. That's the most saddening, tragic story. But there is power. The same power that raised Lazarus from the dead. The same power that raised Paul from the spiritual death that he was in. The same power that raised each one of the Christians in this room is available to you today. The same power at work in our lives is available to you today. So come crying to Christ. Crying out to him. Plead his mercy. For he said that he would cast no man out who approached him with a repentant heart. Come to him for, cry, for mercy and forgiveness. Come to him for his grace.
May God have mercy on us.